Welcome to the Head First Podcast. My name is Joe O'Brien, I'm the host of the podcast, and I'm currently completing a doctorate in health psychology. I also run the Instagram page Head First, so if you want to get in touch with me for any professional inquiries, my contact details are on my page, and they are also in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by Spectrum Mental Health, so if you're looking for mental health support in Ireland, you can check out our website, which is mentalhealth.ie. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. So on the podcast this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Bethany Francois, who is a registered dietitian who specializes in eating disorders. So Beth, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate that. Hi, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on. Um, So I think it'd be great maybe just to get started um, to maybe introduce yourself um, a little bit about your background, maybe, and, and what kind of work you do. Sure. So um, I'm a specialist eating disorders dietitian. And at the moment, I'm working full time in a private children and adolescents eating disorders inpatient unit in London. Um, And I also offer one to one private consultations with the Retrition Clinic. Uh, So I have a master's in eating disorders and clinical nutrition and then a postgrad diploma in dietetics. Okay, well, so you work with children as well as adults. Is that right? Yeah, so my full-time role, kind of Monday to Friday, is children and adolescents. Um, and then the private work that I do with the Retrition Clinic is a mixture of both, but mostly adults. Okay, wow, that must be quite interesting. Is there a big difference between those two? Because I, I personally don't work with, with children. Now I obviously work with like young people who are maybe just out of adolescence, but is there a big difference between those two groups? Uh, I think the main difference is the work that I would do with parents and carers for children and adolescents so when we get to 18 it tends to be more responsibility with the individual themselves whereas kind of below 18 we're looking at doing a lot of work with parents and carers and liaising with them and supporting them as kind as much as the patient themselves. Okay okay so some of the responsibility is is with the family I guess or, or that system that's around them. Yeah exactly. So you mentioned a lot of qualifications there. You've done the, the postgrad in dietetics and you've done a, a master's in clinical nutrition and eating disorders. Um, what kind of qualifications do people generally need to work with eating disorders specifically? Because, you know, there are lots of people out there who would claim that. But uh, I guess from from your perspective, what's like a good qualification to have to to work with with eating disorders? Sure. So generally, I would say most people that work with eating disorders would would either be a registered dietitian or registered nutritionist so affiliated um in terms of kind of specializing specifically as a dietitian there aren't you know qualifications per se that would be taken to qualify to work with eating disorders um but it's kind of the same as specializing in any other area in dietetics in that you tend to be need to show some evidence of kind of professional development in that area. Um, so whether that's courses, um, seminars, that sort of thing, some experience in the speciality. So I know that a lot of people may do some work with pediatrics and they may have eating disorder cases coming through um, and they then may, then may choose to specialise in eating disorders afterwards. So they've had some kind of experience. Um, but more importantly, it's kind of an interest and willingness to learn and expand your knowledge in that area and really showing that that's an area that you're kind of passionate about. Um, But yes, generally I would say that registered dietitians tend to be specifically if we're talking about the NHS services, whether that's outpatient or inpatient, it tends to be dietitians that would be working with eating disorders. So registered dietitian would almost be like the 
I guess the baseline and then after that you're talking about professional development in terms of further courses or at least specialists like our experience working in specific areas that would give you that extra knowledge exactly exactly yeah it must be then quite frustrating when you see you know the coaches or you know personal trainers or even nutritionists who don't have that experience out there kind of offering treatments or solutions to I see it a lot I guess with binge eating but any kind of disordered eating what are your thoughts on that like why is why is that I guess first of all why is it inherently harmful but um what are your thoughts on on people advertising kind of things for disordered eating out there yeah it is definitely very frustrating um you know I think for some reason that seems to be this idea of if you eat and feel you have a normal whatever that might be relationship with food that it kind of automatically qualifies you to support other people to achieve that and obviously we know it's far more complicated than that um you know I think it's so dangerous when we're thinking about individuals who are specifically you know seeking support for a mental health problem is that they're automatically in a space of vulnerability so when you're desperate for your situation to be improved um you know you may have struggled to get adequate support via more conventional routes which we know is an issue um with disordered eating and eating disorders you know, it puts people in the position of maybe being more likely to look elsewhere for support or accept what we can maybe see as professionals as unhelpful because they're in such a place of desperation. And I think that that really is what makes it so dangerous for people. And, you know, I'm not saying that everybody puts non-evidence-based practice out there just to profit off people's vulnerabilities. Um, But sometimes the intention, even if the intention is good, it becomes a little bit irrelevant if the consequences are as detrimental as they often are in eating disorders if people are getting inadequate or kind of incorrect support. Yeah, you're right. That that place of vulnerability where it's kind of like a situation where not only would they try anything, but they would cling to any kind of hope mm-hmm. when you're in that place. And, and maybe you have been rejected from a service. There are lots of diagnostic criteria where people might not get access to a service because of that diagnostic criteria and then turn to, I guess, anyone or anything for, for support and I guess you're right. It's not always that the person is out there to make money off them or prey on the vulnerable people. But at the same time, even well-meaning interventions can sometimes be problematic in that respect. Exactly. When, I guess when you when you consider what people should look for or when, when you speak to, I'm sure lots of people get in touch with you for advice and talk to you about this stuff. But what would you say to people who are looking for some sort of, um, I guess, support for disordered eating or an eating disorder? what should they be looking for? Or are there any kind of ways to recognize, you know, I, sh- I shouldn't touch this kind of approach or I should go for for this kind of approach? Sure. I think the first thing that kind of springs to mind is anyone advocate, advocating or promoting weight loss with, within the realm of eating disorders or as a solution to an eating disorder is definitely a big, big concern. Um, you know, so binge eating disorder specifically, we know that we can't just be aiming for weight loss as a restrictive intake is only going to worsen symptoms. Um, And what really needs to be addressed as a priority is the relationship the individual has with food and themselves. Um, Similarly, kind of anybody that's sending a message that because something has worked for them, that it works universally for all people. Um, So even in, you know, eating disorder guidelines, we have nuances. We don't give the same advice for every single person. Um, And, 
meal plans is another thing that I tend to look for if someone's giving out very specific and detailed meal plans um, then that would be a red flag for me um, you know there are certain circumstances in eating disorder treatment where we might use meal plans you know and, e and even in those cases they're not specific with specific foods and what time you should eat and that kind of thing um, Interesting you say that. It's actually interesting you say that because I was listening to a, a podcast the other day called Very Bad Therapy. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Yeah, People's stories of, of going to therapy. And one of the things that cropped up was the first point you made there about weight loss, mm -hmm. um, where the therapist who, who was like some sort of a counselor or therapist had some sort of qualification, but had no qualifications in, in eating disorders. Their client came and told them about um, how uncomfortable they were in their body and that person's intervention was lose weight this idea of if you change your weight therefore that will change how you kind of feel about yourself and that's just inherently problematic right yeah that I mean there's so many issues with that we know that changing your body is not the solution to fixing how you feel about your body um there's much more going on there um so yeah that is definitely problematic and it's irrespective of what somebody's weight is, weight loss should never be the solution for any form of eating disorder or disordered eating. Um, another thing that I see quite often is, you know, advice to cut out specific foods based on an intolerance or an allergy. So I see a lot of patients who might have specific gut symptoms and they might go and see a nutritionist or a nutritional therapist and they'll advise, well, actually maybe you need to cut X, Y, and Z out of your diet. You might be intolerant to it you know, and actually their gut symptoms are a result of following a restrictive diet and not having enough nutrition. And so I see a lot of patients who have cut things out of their diet based on advice from somebody, yeah. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Because that's something that I don't know an awful lot about, but I know that that exists. Like having these kind of gut symptoms can be a symptom of kind of a, a poor relationship with food or kind of some sort of dietary issue there. And I know that, I guess, if you Google, right? If, you, if someone turns to Dr. Google, which a lot of people do, <laughs> Um, they will find like, oh, this food triggers this symptom and, and cut it out nearly for themselves without even seeing a professional. Um, can you explain a little bit about that relationship between like the gut symptoms and disordered eating a little bit? Because I think that'd be helpful for people to hear. Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's lots of different factors. So one of them, um, you know, if somebody's restricting their intake, if you think about the gut like a muscle, um, it needs to be used in order to maintain its function so the same as you know if we don't if somebody's bedridden for a number of months they their muscle and their legs start wasting our guts the same in that respect um so if there's not enough food going through your digestive system then your gut kind of becomes a bit sluggish um so foods passing through your digestive system at a slower pace um and that means that you're going to feel very full after meals um and that's not a sign that you've eaten too much. It's that your food is moving much more slowly through your digest digestive system. Um, so other reasons, obviously, we've got the gut brain axis. There's loads of um, evidence coming out about that. So if you're feeling specifically anxious and maybe that's around mealtimes and that could be also impacting those sorts of symptoms. Um, people who have a disordered relationship with food are more likely to rely on things like um, sweeteners for example or fizzy drinks like diet fizzy drinks so those kinds of foods that are going to you know lots of fruit and vegetables 
are going to really fill you up and make you feel bloated and not really provide you much in the in the way of energy um so that's another reason that you might have more guts and so there's lots of different factors going in there and actually what i find is first line before we ever think about kind of cutting anything out is normalizing somebody's diet weight restoring if that's needed um, and then reassessing and i would say nine times out of ten once that is done the symptoms resolve wow okay so pretty considerable um success rate if you will or even just normalizing someone's someone's dietary pattern can can normalize those symptoms or change those symptoms in, in some way absolutely yeah. it's so interesting um i, I can honestly ask you so many follow-up questions <laughs> I actually wanted to go into nutrition and dietetics when I was younger. I'm fascinated by it. But the reason that I, I wanted to speak to you was actually to understand um, and kind of dive into the role of a dietitian in treating um, eating disorders, right? Um, so I guess like it's a super broad question, but what role do dietitians play when managing an eating disorder? Because I know from from looking at your Instagram page that you are an advocate of a multidisciplinary team. So you know, that idea of having multiple um, professionals involved mm. in, in supporting someone. Um, but what is your role as a dietitian in eating disorder recovery or, or treating that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll probably talk mainly about my role as an inpatient dietitian for this question first, because um, it's it is slightly different. Um, so the cohort of patients that we will have in an inpatient unit is largely anorexia nervosa so again that kind of differs in the advice and the approach that I'd be taking as a dietitian and so I mean if I kind of split it into parts I would say the first thing might be managing physical risk Um, so that will be looking at things like refeeding syndrome so often patients when they're admitted will be at risk of refeeding syndrome um, which is essentially you really need to monitor their calorie intake you know you can't go from somebody essentially being in starvation mode um, and then providing them with a a full you know meeting their nutritional requirements overnight because um, it's dangerous in terms of electrolytes and lots of other things Um, so that is something that we'll we'll kind of be taking charge of and monitoring Um, and then alongside that would be reviewing patients weights Um, so as an inpatient unit generally patients are admitted and need to weight restore. Um, so we'd be kind of monitoring that alongside their meal plans and making adjustments and changes to their meal plans based on their weight. Um, so lots of psychoeducation. So, you know, lots of sessions with patients about energy and metabolism, you know, the importance of different food groups, talking about why we need fats and carbohydrates and all of those foods that tend to kind of be um, ostracized, I would say, in society. Um, thinking about calorie counting, breaking down lots of dietary myths. So we see lots of kind of diet culture infiltrating, you know, alongside the eating disorder and really perpetuating symptoms. So we'd be working with patients to kind of break down those sorts of myths. Um, As I mentioned, a lot of work with family and carers, you know, how to support patients during leave, educating them about meal plans and why they're important. empowering them to help support their child to challenge the eating disorder um, and again obviously we would be supporting patients to do that too so including fear foods variety on their menus um, I do a lot of work cha- um, helping patients to transition from nasogastric feeding and um, so that again is something that would be quite different to outpatient so um, I, we tend to have 
a few patients who require nasogastric feeding and obviously at some point we're going to going to be working with them to transition to food um that's that's tube feeding am i right in saying that that's yeah sorry so that that's tube feeding that's a tube that goes um through the nose and into the stomach okay. um so yeah so unfortunately we have some patients that require nasogastric feeding um and we would obviously as a dietitian we would be kind of um prescribing those plans and those feeding regimens what's what's the difference then between like you mentioned kind of meal plans delivered by anybody versus the meal plans that you would deliver to these patients who are obviously quite at risk and, and I guess for anyone who doesn't know or hasn't heard this me speak about this before is, is like anorexia specifically um has quite a high mortality rate mm-hmm. right it's, it's um kind of the most high risk um, mental health issue that there that there is like yeah. ahead of depression ahead of um, addiction and all, all of that um mm-hmm. so obviously that's a vital part refeeding and, and restoring um someone's uh, nutrition and things like that is is really important just to literally save their lives sometimes um what what's the difference in terms of the the meal planning for someone like that versus um the people out there who are dishing out that advice yeah so i think you know even our meal plans would be fairly prescriptive so again if we're thinking about refeeding syndrome we need to know have a pretty good idea of the energy intake that somebody is having if they're at risk of refeeding syndrome um because again that is dangerous and it can be fatal um so we need to make sure that we are not increasing their intake too quickly um but even even with that we wouldn't prescribe meal plans that say um okay you have to have 40 grams of cereal or and then you can only have I don't know um a piece of salmon and some potatoes and some vegetables at dinner so what it tends to be for us definitely once we're out of the refeeding risk um you know if patients are going on home leave there will be a meal plan but it might say breakfast is a portion of cereal and a slice of toast you know morning snack is some biscuits or a yogurt evening meal is is a typical evening meal that we made by the family we might give rough ideas of portions in terms of kind of using the plate as an example it might be thirds so it's very it's not prescriptive in the sense of telling somebody to weigh their food calorie count and eat specific foods and it's also based on exactly what that client needs as well right it's like you guys have have done thorough work to understand what's Mm -hmm. going on for this individual and they're almost exact I'd imagine like kind of nutrition requirements at the stage that they're at and I guess Mm -hmm. the risk of that is far lower than someone giving out their generic advice to cut out x y and z or do this in the morning or whatever right exactly exactly it's very they're very individualized um and based on that specific patient that's in front of us essentially and then what about your um outpatient role then what what differs about your um your Mm -hmm. role in, in that area Yeah, so my outpatient cohort tends to be um, more binge eating and bulimic symptoms and disordered eating. Um, So in in these cases, we'll be thinking more about normalizing the pattern of eating. So I see a lot of people that have either they implement like delayed eating, so they won't eat for, uh, you know, a certain number of hours in the morning and they will only start eating at, you know, in the afternoon. And that's because of a fear of if they start eating earlier, they'll be eating too much. So we tend to be thinking about how to normalize the pattern of eating, um, introducing regular meals, 
neutralizing foods and kind of moving away from this idea of being good and bad foods and building up tools and techniques to meet the emotional needs so that we're not relying on food to meet those needs um, and helping to support individuals to start to become more in tune with their body's needs. Um, You know, and these are the things that ideally we would want to be doing with patients in an inpatient setting, but at a later stage. And normally when patients are ready for this kind of thing, they've normally left the clinic. Um, So that's the kind of thing that will be done afterwards. So in an inpatient, we're looking more at kind of an acute presentation. Um, Yeah. Whereas whereas the outpatient would be maybe higher functioning or or like less impactful to, to their ability to function day to day? Yeah, so I... I kind of explain the difference between inpatient and outpatient it's not that one is necessarily more severe than the other but yes it is about that functioning so is it impacting your day-to-day life to an extent that you actually can't function in your day-to-day life um yeah so I would I would say it's more about kind of how much you're able to function and engage with life um yeah first thing because I actually interviewed somebody last last week who's a friend of mine and they've struggled with anorexia for many years and they said that one of the most difficult parts for them was um when they regained or when they did the weight restoring process they were inpatient and when they came back out they found that although physically you know they were in a better place that you know and they were able to function that still the kind of eating disorder thoughts and things like that were were still kind of present Mm -hmm. and that's another bit that, that you mentioned kind of helping people see maybe what their emotional needs are and things like that I'm sure there'll be plenty of people listening to this who will struggle with disordered eating or something along those lines. What are the signs for you um, that someone might need further psychological support alongside that nutrition work? So the types of things that a dietitian wouldn't work on, because from what I see, kind of when people identify difficulty in relationship with food, like the first thing is, is always nutritionist, nutritionist or dietitian, right? Nobody, nobody ever for the first port of call turns to a psychologist because, you know, they think food, nutritionist, dietitian. Um, so with that in mind, like what aspects might pop up for you that you think, oh, this person might need further support or this mm-hmm. person might, might need to work with the psychologist alongside myself? Yeah, I- I mean, I would probably say that in most instances, the individuals that I see should be having psychological input. Um, I think that it's it's much, sometimes it's easier to maybe see food as being the problem because it might feel like a safer thing to approach and think about changing, whereas actually, you know, confronting emotions and the psychological aspects that are underpinning it can feel really like incredibly daunting. Um, And I think that that might be as well one of the reasons that people tend to look for nutritional support in the first instance. Um, I think it's quite rare for me to see patients or clients who I don't think would benefit from any psychological support. Um, I think particularly if it becomes clear that the disordered eating behaviors are employed as a way to kind of regulate emotions and as a coping strategy and you know it works I think sometimes we forget that yes there are behaviors that are unhealthy and they're you know they're not coping strategies we would be advising but actually a lot of the time they're providing a very real function and role for somebody and it's really important because if we're taking that coping mechanism away what are we replacing it with and if they've got nothing in their toolbox to replace that with then then actually are we setting somebody up to fail um 
So I think that it's really, you know, if somebody's clearly relying on on something to provide a functioning as a coping strategy, then it's really important for some kind of psychological input, definitely. I think it's, it's great to hear you say that because one of the things that firstly the, the first point that you made about like it's it's a lot easier to engage with a nutritionist and think that food is the problem i think honestly that's one of the reasons why people do see me because i talk about behavior change and they're like oh i want to change the behavior and it's mm-hmm. almost like having the foot in the door then i'm like okay well, like let's talk about emotions and feelings and they're like wait a second i came here for the, I came here for the behavior change right but I think that's it. You're right in that even that is like a kind of lowering the barrier to, to actually get support. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing you mentioned there was like everyone could probably do with some form of, of psychological support. Um, one of the things that, that often it, it, it irritates me a little bit because there is this very black and white diagnostic criteria of mm-hmm. what an eating disorder is. And I think traditionally in the medical model, if you don't meet that criteria, if you don't meet the criteria for an eating disorder, people do think, oh, it's a problem with food or it's a problem with me, right? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like if you meet the mental health diagnostic criteria, you need mental health support. Otherwise, it's either a problem with me or a problem with food. Would you say even with the people who don't meet that criteria that they would still uh, benefit from that support? Absolutely. And you know, I think we need to start looking at this as more of a spectrum. As you said, it's very black and white, like either an eating disorder or not an eating disorder. And actually the the spectrum we're looking at as to when, you know, disordered eating crosses into an eating disorder is so blurred and so much more complex than people think it is. And actually, you know, for a lot of the people that I see who don't meet clinical, you know, criteria for an eating disorder, you know, are really suffering with low self-esteem and inability to regulate their emotions. Um, you know, that those underlying factors are actually not that different to somebody who is presenting with an eating disorder. It's actually the behaviours and symptoms may be different, but that underlying causality is actually quite similar. Yeah, so it's almost like the underlying piece can be expressed in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. It's actually interesting because I think that's something that you mentioned a while back on one of the kind of Q&As that you, that you did. Um, I mean, you were kind of explaining how um, the eating behavior is a symptom of what's going on, right? And, and you kind of mentioned that there. So um, I think it's really helpful to, to actually hear you say about how, how much of a function it does serve. Because mm-hmm. people often say like, you know, I'm struggling with X, Y, and Z, and uh, I hate that I use food. But food can often be, whether it's like restricting or, um, you know, binging or whatever that kind of behavior looks like, it is an effective way. Mm-hmm. It's not helpful because it has a lot of kind of consequences for people, um, mm-hmm. but it's it's serving some sort of function or it's doing a job. But you mentioned that it's, it's kind of a symptom. Can you explain kind of what you meant by the eating is a, a symptom? Because I, I feel like that's a a big barrier for people to actually go to mental health support versus nutrition support is they don't recognize that it's a symptom. So what do you mean when you say that it's a symptom? Sure. So I think, yeah, as you've just said, I mean, I see the behaviors, the restricting eating, purging, binging, over-exercising, any of those kind of behaviors aren't the eating disorder themselves. They're the, the behaviors in which the disorder manifests and that's going to look different for different people. Um, so yes, obviously treating those behaviors is absolutely necessary and important but it's not the entire solution so an eating disorder could be providing a safety blanket for somebody it could be a sense of control or achievement um, a way to 
express emotional distress for somebody who's unable to kind of communicate that verbally to the people around them, provide a sense of identity. So, you know, to really recover, we need to be able to support individuals to understand the function their eating disorder is providing, then thinking about why that function is needed in the first place, and then eventually helping them to see why it's like no longer needed. Obviously I've made that sound much more simple than it actually is in reality. Um, but I think in order for people to better understand eating disorders generally, and to kind of break that barrier down for people looking to seek support, it's crucial for everyone to understand that at a basic level, an eating disorder is a psychiatric illness that may present with physical complication, rehabilitation or you know controlling the behaviors that we're seeing is not going to be curative and i think that that is why we see we, there are quite high relapse rates for eating disorders you know it, it's not a smooth journey from recovery it, there you know there are dips because i think people tend to focus on those behaviors so rigidly um and actually the way our mental health system is unfortunately is that you know you may be you may be in an inpatient unit and actually they may be focusing on a lot of those behaviors and um, weight restoration if that's kind of indicated and then because we don't see those behaviors as much or the person may be at a healthy weight and then they may move on and be discharged then actually that support that really needs to kick in then to kind of identify those underlying factors is then not available because the person is not presenting with the symptoms that people typically see someone with an eating disorder and think that they need support. So it's a very like catch 20, it's really, really difficult. Um, but it's, I really, I think, yeah. It's one of the problems, one of the problems with diagnostic criteria is that it's focused on behaviors, right? It's not focused mm -hmm. on specifically the underlying psychological symptoms. So there are categories arbitrary picked out from somewhere that, you know, BMI is one of them for anorexia, for example, and they're related to like eating and a lot of them are related to kind of eating behaviors and restriction. And I think a small percentage of them might be kind of distress related to that. However, yes. what you're saying is like the relapse rates there, what you're describing is that in some inpatient settings, and I'm aware of some, um, even here in Ireland, that mm -hmm. someone goes in and it is all focused on the nutritional side of things, get them back to like the kind of um, I guess a, a more healthy weight or, or whatever that looks like for that person so that they aren't exhibiting those behaviors, but the relapse might occur because the psychological stuff or the underlying piece that um, preceded maybe those behaviors hasn't ever been addressed. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. One of the things that, that popped up for me when I, when I was, um, I, I think, I'm not sure if I came across your page before or after this post, but I, I remember reading the um, veganism in recovery post. And I found that so interesting because I had heard people speak about it before. And um, I remember my manager in work mentioning something about it and it kind of, it was a light bulb moment for me a little bit. Um, I almost felt at the time that it, it was going to be a bit controversial because of how kind of normal being a vegan is, right? It, it, and, and that's fine for people. But when we talk about eating disorder recovery, can you speak about the potential role of veganism in recovery and why it might be problematic for some people yeah sure I, I was definitely slightly apprehensive to post that one um I think for me 
because as veganism has become kind of so popular and, and normalized, which I'm by no means saying is a bad thing, um, it has become quite a socially acceptable way of somebody with an eating disorder restricting. So yes, veganism is not was not designed to be a restrictive diet or for that purpose, but obviously by the nature the nature of having a diet whereby specific foods are excluded means that it, you know, it is a restrictive diet because you're not able to eat all foods that are available to you. Um, you know, the, the idea of imposing something that is dietary is a dietary rule essentially is going to be detrimental for somebody with an eating disorder, because actually are we recovering or are we swapping one means of control and rigidity around food for another? Um, you know, veganism can become very intertwined with someone's identity and an eating disorder, it can often be um, providing that role of an, an identity for somebody. And are we just swapping that now for veganism? And, and we don't want somebody's identity to be, you know, connected to what they're eating because we are people, you know, we've got personalities, you know, we, we aren't what we eat. Um, you know, it, it I see, I've seen in the, you know, a lot of the patients I've seen is that it's a way to reduce the guilt from what they're eating. So that was, for example, that was a really difficult meal. Um, I, or I went out for a meal and that was really challenging and my eating disorders really annoyed that I did that, but actually I had a vegan meal. So I, I don't need to feel so guilty about it. And, and essentially that's kind of, it's not challenging the eating disorder it's allowing the eating disorder to kind of still have control over somebody. Um, you know, it, it, you can avoid fear foods quite easily on a vegan diet and it can, you know, it's much easier to sit in a restaurant with a group of people and say, can I have that without the cheese because I'm vegan rather than can I have that without the cheese because I'm really scared of it and, and I don't really feel ready to have that right now. You know, it's, it's a socially acceptable way of essentially doing the same thing. Um, say, nobody would say, you know, can I have that without cheese because of an eating disorder? Yes. Yeah. It's almost like the title or having those food rules, even if it's regardless of, of I guess, veganism, having mm -hmm. those food rules is like the acceptable way or a way to, like you said, kind of feel less guilty about, um, I guess, continuing or perpetuating the eating disorder rules or that eating disorder voice, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I often think about the timing so if I'm assessing a patient and they're telling me that they're vegan you know I really want to know you know for how long when did this start when did you you know introduce this and I've never ever come across I've come across a, a, a number of individuals who have said they're vegan at assessment and I've never met anyone who has been vegan from birth or from a young age or years before their eating disorder is always being bef just before or during the onset of the illness and therefore kind of separating them is very very difficult it's very unlikely that those things have emerged completely independently that's so interesting because uh, kind of ta addressing someone's identity and how that ties in with diet for me in, a, in any area is like a, a really difficult piece of work to do i'd imagine trying to i guess disentangle mm -hmm. some of those things when it ties in so tightly like that like like veganism might um that must be really hard work it is really difficult and and yeah I, I've seen patients who are really um, passionate about animal ethics and 
and and that is absolutely fine but I always say you know you can't fight for animal rights if you're dying and you know there's a time and maybe at one point you might be in a better place there are so many things that we can do other than being vegan um so I will often speak to patients about those kinds of things you know the v I'm sure on the veganism society website they've got kind of a statement that is you know it's essentially kind of do it if you can, you know, health comes first. Um, and and yeah, it, it can be very, very intertwined with somebody's identity. And actually what I want to do is remove the idea of food impacting who we are as people or our self-worth or our moral value, because that is what an eating disorder tries to convince somebody is that their moral value and their self-worth is dependent on what they eat and what they weigh. And, we, and that's really what we want to move away from. And do you think that, uh, that, I, that I guess the, what you're saying there is the reason veganism can kind of perpetuate that eating disorder is because of, you know, socially acceptable way to adhere to food rules, kind of continue in line with what your eating disorder would have done. Do you think that applies to other things like things like intermittent fasting and like, you know, super low calorie diets and, and those types of things? Do you think they facilitate the eating disorder in, in a similar way? Sorry, it broke it cut out a bit then That's i just missed these. What, I was, what i was saying is that obviously um the role of veganism there is that it um is i guess restrictive by nature right you can't include all food groups um and it's a socially acceptable way to continue or perpetuate the eating disorder thoughts or, or the pattern um do you think that other approaches or kind of dietary patterns like intermittent fasting or you know super low calorie diets or like weight loss diets do you think they are also socially acceptable ways of doing the same thing yeah completely and, and I think often if we look at those kinds of diets is that if I was seeing a patient who was diagnosed with an eating disorder and they were telling me that they only started eating at 12 o'clock they had their first meal and then they had their last meal by six that's to me, that's an eating disorder behavior. And, and whether or not I'm seeing that in a patient who has an eating disorder or seeing in someone who's calling it intermittent fasting, the behavior is the same. Um, I think it's become very normal to, to promote eating disorder behaviors in diets that are designed for weight loss. Um, you know, just, it doesn't make them okay, if that makes sense. Um, you know, so, you know, a very low calorie diet if somebody was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa it would just be an eating disorder symptom. It wouldn't be a, a diet that would be accepted in that individual. Um, so I think that, I think that there are essentially lots of different names out there now for different diets that are a different ways of restricting somebody's eating essentially. That was actually something that I, I did want to kind of touch on before we do finish up because there are lots of things that people commonly promote that are supposed to be kind of helpful and some people totally avoid them on the other hand so there's obviously the very black and white social media world where there's some things either right or wrong um where do you kind of fall with calorie counting i get a lot of clients who come into me struggling with certain things and they want to use calorie counting as a way to you know get over their issue or kind of tackle or address their issue where do you fall in terms of calorie counting is that a helpful thing for someone with an eating disorder or unhelpful or is it more nuanced than that I, I think it is more nuanced than that generally I would say rigid 
calorie counting is not going to be helpful for most people. Um, if I think it feeds into this idea of the way we eat needing to be very exact and correct and, and no room for kind of, you know, a gray area, you know, you, because people can get very fixated on calories. Um, and then in, in, then it can create a huge amount of anxiety. So now I've got a calorie limit and now I'm anxious about going over that or am I trying to meet that calorie limit whereas actually I'm I'm feeling quite happy with what I've eaten today but now I'm feeling like oh I can have something else because you know we're not really following our internal cues if we're following the rules of an external kind of number um you know and as you said individuals with eating disorders specifically anorexia nervosa tend to have a very black and white thinking style very high levels of rigidity so it's very easy for even a general and rough kind of calorie guidance to very quickly become very extreme and rigid. Um, however, I don't think this means that some people feel like calories shouldn't be spoken about or, you know, this idea that they're a forbidden word. And, and actually, I think that just reinforces the idea that calories are something bad and essentially it's just a unit of energy. Um, in some instances, it is important to talk about calories. So, so the patients that I might have on meal plans, um, specifically the, like children and adolescents, their parents are gonna need to have a rough idea of the calories of snacks they should be having, for example, because eating disorders can be very manipulative. And if I say a cereal bar, then actually what cereal bar is the patient convincing their parents to allow them to have and that kind of thing. Um, so I wouldn't say that they should be, calories should be avoided completely, but I don't think that it should be kind of a rigid counting process. It's interesting because what sprung to mind there was kind of how I feel about weight as well. It's it's like it's not a positive or negative. It like weight is a measurement of mass or whatever, and calories are a measurement of energy, and they're just neutral. They're not good or bad. And I think that's what you're getting at there, right? It's like it's not good or bad. It's just like yeah. a neutral number that that we yeah. I guess we've actually assigned meaning to, or someone who struggles with that actually assigns meaning to. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the idea of self weighing? Then I know you spoke about weighing patients um, like under your supervision. And I know mm -hmm. that is an important part of, of eating disorder recovery, especially with anorexia. Um, what do you think about self-weighing um, and the idea that we should check our own weights and, and our recovery status should depend on that? Or where do you, where do you kind of lie yeah. with weighing? Again, I, I don't think there's a straight answer. I think it's really important to think about the individual and for the individual to think about their reaction so i know lots of individuals who if they aren't weighing themselves regularly their eating disorder allows their thoughts to spiral and catastrophize and convince the patient or or client that their weight is suddenly increasing at a rate that it's not um, and actually unless they're able to see the evidence of that then those thoughts spiral and are more likely to lead to then further restriction some individuals however are much more able to manage when they don't know what their weight is. Um, and in those instances, I wouldn't see the need, you know, I wouldn't be encouraging somebody to weigh themselves if they find that detrimental. So I think it's about being really honest with yourself and how, how you react and respond to it. Um, you know, if it is being done, it needs to be done very carefully. It shouldn't be done, you know, more than once a week. Um, as an outpatient, definitely not. Um, and ideally having some support from someone who can provide you with some psychoeducation as to why weight fluctuations happen so that 
you know, you're not weighing yourself and then responding to that weight by implementing different behaviours to try and control it. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, obviously, in, in an inpatient setting, it's, you know, it's deemed kind of like a medical requirement to monitor physical status. Um, That's so interesting, actually, because I never would have thought of the idea of not weighing someone and actually the emotional response of not weighing could actually cause more distress than maybe the number on the scales does. That's so, so interesting. Yeah. One of the things that comes up an awful lot in my clinic is, like I said, I, I speak about my work in terms of behavior change. Like I wouldn't consider myself an eating disorder therapist by any means, like a health psychologist isn't generally an eating disorder specialist. Um, but we do kind of incorporate a lot of the psychology in relation mm. to, to those behaviors. But people come to me because I speak about this stuff. Um, and, and I guess as part of that, consider weight loss. And people turn up on day one and they say, you know, I want to lose weight. And what's getting in the way is this emotional eating or binge eating or disordered eating in some way. Can you speak about how that desire for weight loss is kind of incongruent from eating disorders or like how might it impact recovery? Mm -hmm. yeah this is so so common um you know the difficulty is that by focusing on weight loss you are inevitably going to be engaging in some kind of restrictive eating behavior and you know that this doesn't mean severely restricting your intake um or you know cutting out an entire food group it can be as subtle as not honoring what your body needs you know now if you're already presenting with kind of binge eating or emotional eating symptoms this is only going to, going, going to worse those and maintain the restrict binge cycle because your body is going to respond by you denying what it needs with uh, an increased risk of binging or emotionally eating. So normalizing your relationship with food, you know, regular eating, understanding what's driving the behaviors is crucial before the idea of weight loss can be explored. And I think it's interesting, um, you kind of noted that people feel that they're, emotional eating or binge eating is getting in the way of of weight loss and actually is it the pursuit of weight loss that is getting in the way of having a normal relationship with food um and i imagine that it's actually probably the other way around yeah exactly that's that's i guess where some of my my work is focused it's like helping people see that for themselves because like telling them is all well and good but sometimes people just won't believe you and some some people will like maybe go to a new therapist or go to a new dietitian because they don't believe that that's the case um but it's about helping them kind of see it for themselves um and it, it kind of also comes in with that idea that we spoke about earlier that if i lose weight i'll feel happier and i know we've already touched on that but just reiterating the point that that is not the case like our mm -hmm. I, I, a classic example that I would kind of give to people is related to anorexia. And you probably see this all the time. People say to me, oh, well, if I was just, you know, this much weight less, um, I would be happy. Yet there are people who I'm sure you work with who are thinking like borderline or on the verge of, of potentially dying or organ failure or significant health risks who are saying, if I was just a little bit lighter, oh, well, then I can start recovery. Or if I'm a little bit lighter, then I can start to get better or I'll just be that little bit happier but is that representative of what you see oh completely and you know it just shows you that no matter the weight that you're losing and no matter how much you weigh if your mindset is the same you're you're not going to feel happy in your body and a classic example of that I hear people say all the time 
you know, they look at old photos and they'll say, I can't believe I used to hate my body then and I was so much smaller. And it is complete proof that it was never about your body. Your body was never the problem. It, it's the mindset that you have. And, and actually what we find is dieting and pursuing weight loss tends to really increase people's preoccupation with their body and worsens their body dissatisfaction. You know, body dissatisfaction is to do with how you perceive your body and how you view yourself as an individual. It's not an issue with your body itself. Um, and yeah, that it, you know, you're completely right. You know, I see patients who, who still, when they're admitted into hospital and, and they still are saying that they, that they, if only they were a bit smaller and then they'd be happier. And actually they've been through this whole process and, what's really amazing to see is when they're doing much better is that they're able to kind of look back and and say actually that's the saddest I've ever been when I was at my smallest I've never been that sad before I, it's it's actually hard to hear that but um in terms of giving people I guess some sort of optimism or finishing with a bit of hope for people um you've obviously seen the recovery process kind of up close specifically with with people who are like I said, kind of on the verge of, of really some significant health struggles. Mm. What does recovery from an eating disorder look like? Uh, like, obviously, that's kind of different depending on what you struggle with before and, and recovery is different for everyone. But are there any kind of key characteristics of someone who gets that place of, of recovery or is you know close to recovery from an eating disorder? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, of, of, we've got the obvious things kind of being less preoccupied with, you know, your body and your body image and food. But I think some of the amazing aspects of my job is seeing, you know, individuals become more engaged with life again and do activities that they enjoy and that they find fulfilling and that not every second of their, you know, waking day is taken up by worrying about food and their body. And actually they can do meaningful things in their life. Um, I think being able to have some insight into your eating disorder behaviors and thoughts is really, really important. So when patients start to say, actually, I, I know why I'm thinking this and that that's my eating disorder coming into play here. Um, you know, that drive and motivation to want to make progress, you know, having goals and saying, that actually, I'm, I'm going to reach those and I'm not going to live my life in the way that I am now. Um, you know, I always say that it's not about the eating disorder thoughts not being there because that can take a really, really, really long time. And it's fine for the thoughts to be there, but how are you responding to them? You know, if you're, if the thoughts are coming and you're not acting on them, then actually that's where I see significant progress and you can actually go on to start living your life in the way that you need to be able to. Um, and obviously not kind of, not self-blaming. So it's clearly no one's fault ever when they have an eating disorder. But getting to that point where you can accept that you're not to blame, but also take responsibility that it is your responsibility to recover. No, no one else and no amount of support can do that unless you want it. Um, so I think I think when you start to see individuals recognize that, you know, yes, this is rubbish and I didn't ask for this and I don't want it, but it's my job to do something about it. I think that's where we're kind of looking at people taking that step in towards recovery. I think it's really great to hear you talk about insight because I think insight is kind of powerful for a lot of people. I think if you have the insight of 
the function that your eating disorder disorder serves if you know like what your eating disorder thoughts are versus like who you are and, and what your values are you'll always have some level of I guess power or or, or mm -hmm. ability to do something about it because then you kind of recognize the difference between those two things and the other thing you said there about having those thoughts like those thoughts are are I guess partially like normal for most people most people will have thoughts about their body or thoughts about food in some way like not to the extent maybe that other people have struggled with it but the ability to have those thoughts and have those feelings maybe about the person themselves maybe about themselves or maybe about food and to act a way that's still in line with their values is huge because I guess the way I talk about it when I talk about emotional eating is like emotions will always come up and mm if you're able to process those or, or express those in a helpful way, um, that's, that is recovery. It's not that the emotions will never be there. And similar with eating disorder thoughts that you're talking about there, it's like, not that they'll never be there ever again, but if they do come up that you're able to manage them without turning back to those old coping strategies. So I'm really, it's, it's really, I guess, hopeful, I guess, um, to, yeah. to hear you talk about that. Um, I'm aware we're quite tight on time. Um, <laughs> Just briefly to, to kind of wrap up, um, if you were to kind of give advice to people out there wanting to recover, what kind of supports are out there? What would you say to, to those people? The first thing, and it's so cliche because everybody always says this, but is to tell someone um, it's really difficult to cope with this on your own. Um, I'd also say, you know, it's never too late. I see lots of people that think that it's impossible, you know, that I've been, I've struggled with, with this for too long. It's it's never too late um, for somebody to recover. And I truly, truly believe that. Um, I always would say that the GP is the first port of call. I know that people have really mixed experiences with this and that's a whole other, you know, we could go on with on about that for ages, but um, Beats, the Eating Disorders Charity have a really, really great resource. Um, and it's just like a printout and you can take it to the GP and it breaks down those myths that the GP might already be thinking in terms of do, does this person need to be referred on and it has answers for them already. Um, so if you're feeling really, you know, you're not that confident and you're worried about kind of not getting the help you need, that can be really, really useful. Um, you know, and also create your social media. There are a lot of supportive accounts out there. Um, you know, professionals sharing really incredible and helpful advice, which of course shouldn't replace individual professional support. Um, but we know that we're on social media all the time. And if you're being bombarded with really unhelpful messages, then even if you are having professional support, you know, outside of that, then every time you go into your phones, I always say to patients, actually you're undoing all, a lot of the hard work that you're doing. Um, so yeah, I would definitely try to enlist professional support, but I know that is easier said than done. Um, and for people that are kind of on the recovery journey, you know, recovery isn't linear and it's fine. And it's much better to kind of accept the bumps in the road rather than resist them um, and just kind of know that they are going to come up, but actually you're still on the right path. But that's been incredibly helpful. Um, I got I got so much out of that. So I'm sure <laughs> the people listening will, will also get the same from it. Um, if people want to find you on social media, where do they find you? Um, at the ED Dietitian on Instagram. 
Cool. Beth, thank you so much. I, I appreciate your time. I, I really love your, your work. And that's why I asked you to come on, because I think it's, it's so insightful to hear you talk about it. You're obviously really passionate about it and you have the appropriate qualifications to actually talk about it. So thank you so much for your time. I know you're probably incredibly busy at the moment, so I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.